Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. This is the Ministry of Fear, a network of terror that lays bare the secrets locked in every man's mind. Using strange hypnotic torture, relentless, cunning, tangling their quarry in a web of horror until he reaches the brink of madness. Who speaks? Who said that? Don't break the circle. Who told you that? <laughs> Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Light. Cost. Look at cost. There is no escape from the Ministry of Fear, where menace lurks behind every shadow, where a blind man sees and strikes in the night. Ministry of Fear, starring Ray Meland as a man obsessed by murder, with Marjorie Reynolds as his only hope, through a nightmare of never-ending flight. Willie asked me if I was falling in love with you. And? I said... Yes. I know my record. You can send me back to the asylum on any charge. I don't care what you do with me. I tell you, they did it. I ask you for one fair chance to prove it. Nobody lives here. No cigarettes, no personal belongings, nothing. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Ministry of Fear from 1944. The studio, Paramount Pictures, the release date October 16th, 1944, the running time 87 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Malden from his classic movie guide gives it 3 out of 4 stars. His quick little synopsis is, Atmospheric thriller of wartime London, with Ray Milan framed in a complicated espionage plot. Good cast, fine touches by director Fritz Lang. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 87% fresh from 23 reviews. Now, I first saw Ministry of Fear at a film noir festival at the awesome Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, California, and I knew I liked Ray Milan before I saw the film. But the similarity to early Hitchcock is what really drew me into this film, and to eventually buy it when it was released on DVD, especially when it was a Criterion release. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, Ray Milan plays Stephen Neal. Milan was born in Wales, and he started his career in British films in small roles in the late 1920s. He was eventually noticed for his work in The Flying Scotsman, and then offered a contract by MGM, and then moved to the United States in 1930. He continued to make a name for himself with the studio, and by the late 1930s, he was a leading man. His best-known films prior to Ministry of Fear were Bo Guest with Gary Cooper, The Major and the Minor with Ginger Rogers, and The Uninvited with Ruth Hussey. A year after Ministry of Fear, Milan won the Oscar for Best Actor for The Lost Weekend. Marjorie Reynolds plays Carla Hilfa, and Reynolds started her career as a child actor in the early 1920s at the age of six. 
Her best-known film to this point was Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby. She later was known for her role as Peg, William Bendix's wife, in the TD adaptation of The Life of Riley in the 1950s. The director was Fritz Lang, and I'll get into Lang's history in a bit, but his most famous films up until now were Metropolis from 1927, M with Peter Lorre, Fury with Spencer Tracy, and You Only Live Once with Henry Fonda. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So, the director, Fritz Lang, had already completed two anti-Nazi films prior to Ministry of Fear, and they were Manhunt and Hangman Also Die. And then the writer of the screenplay for Ministry of Fear was Seton Miller, and he was also the producer of the film, which is very rare for any film production. Now, Lang had wanted to adapt this film for years, but he couldn't get the rights to the novel. Years later, Paramount came to him, who also owned the rights, and asked him to direct. But then he wasn't allowed to write the screenplay. And so Miller and Lang had very different interpretations about how the ad- adaptation should be. And since Miller was also the producer of the film, his ideas won out ma- the majority of the time. Now, Graham Greene, who wrote the original novel, wasn't happy with the film a- adaptation, most notably a plot point where the protagonist suffers amnesia, which was not part of the film. Also, Green wanted the Nazi characters to be more overt than subtle. He wanted more condemning of their actions than what actually made it into the final film. For me, this is a subtle charm of the film because they are supposed to be undercover and not completely obvious. Fritz Lang was especially passionate about his anti-Nazi films, and this was because Joseph Goebbels, the Ministry of Propaganda for the Nazi Party, offered Lang complete control of the film department under the Nazi rule, and this meant Lang would create films for the Nazis, Goebbels also said that the Nazi party would ignore the fact that Lang was half-Jewish and allow him to be the head of the film department anyway. Lang said he would think over the offer, and that night he packed and left for Paris, never to return to Germany. Now, this is the story that Lang told. However, after Lang's death, more came out about what really occurred that makes the story a bit more murky. It is definitely true Lang turned down the offer from Goebbels. However, he didn't simply just go straight to Paris. He traveled around Europe for weeks before finally settling down. The immediate decline of Goebbels' offer wasn't quite as immediate as he claimed. Now, this shouldn't tarnish Lang's legacy at all, nor his work in fighting against the Nazis by making anti-Nazi films and, of course, his pro-democracy stance. It is said that Lang felt he had to prove himself to the American public for his loyalty and non-compliance with the Nazi party. In many ways, Lang and Hitchcock had similar styles when it came to the main character in their films. The protagonist is often accused of a crime they did not commit, and embroiled in a complicated law and justice system that does not have a straight line sort of outcome. And often, the main character becomes the type of person that they are initially fighting against. Also, like Hitchcock, there would always be a MacGuffin character that sort of throws you off and keeps the viewer on their toes and you may have to go back and figure out how they really pertain to the story as a whole. All right, let's get into the film. Unfortunately, there were no clips for Ministry of Fear that I could find, and though I do have a pristine Criterion Collection DVD that I recommend uh, to anyone that's a fan of the film. However, I do have a radio adaptation from 1949, at least at the end of this episode, with different actors. So, uh, unfortunately, if you like clips, you're just going to get me for this episode, but this is a rarity, so you get what you get. It's all free anyway, right? So the film begins with Stephen Neal, Ray Milland, staring at his wall clock, waiting for 6 p.m. to come. He is being released from a sanitarium in, in the town of Lembridge, 
which he was admitted to after having a breakdown. The clock in the scene is important because the subsequent events that happened to Stephen would only occur if he leaves the sanitarium at that very moment. So let's say he left five minutes after. None of the events in the film would have occurred, which is fair to say it's very evident in real life with things that happen. Stephen heads to the train station for a trip to London. He has an hour to kill, so he heads over to a charity gathering, which looks like a county fair, and this is to help the Mothers of Free Nations cause. Stephen goes to the different booths, handing over money for each raffle. Now, one is to guess the weight of a cake. The other booth he visits is a fortune teller. The fortune teller is a bit rude, but Stephen doesn't mind at first. But then she tries to give a palm reading about his past and a certain woman of his past, which he immediately bristles at. He then says he just wants to hear about his future. The fortune teller suddenly gets serious and tells him what he really wants is the weight of the cake. She says to go back and give the exact weight of 4 pounds and 15 and a half ounces. Whether or not the weight is correct is immaterial. This is the code he needs to give. So Stephen goes back to the cake booth, gives the weight that was instructed by the fortune teller, and he wins the prize of the cake. The people around the booth look at Stephen in amazement and then silence as he takes his prize. Obviously, there's something up with this cake. As Stephen begins to walk out of the fair back to the train station, a man pulls up in a car and immediately runs to the fortune teller booth. The women running the cake stand flag down Stephen and tell him they made a mistake about the weight and that the man who just arrived was the real winner. However, Stephen actually made a guess prior to his instructions from the fortune teller, which was actually closer to the revised weight given by the woman. And so Stephen calmly explains he won no matter what and gives the woman some more money for the trouble and walks away. As Stephen gets on the train in his own compartment, he sees a shadow slowly walk up to the compartment. At first, we think this might be the man who claimed he won the cake, but it's actually an older blind man who asks if there's any room in his compartment. Stephen helps this man on board. Stephen makes small talk with the man and offers him some of the cake. As Stephen cuts a piece for the man, we discover that this man isn't blind at all, as the camera gives a close-up of him looking around the compartment for something, and Stephen, of course, is oblivious to this. However, the man does something very odd, which Stephen notices immediately. Instead of simply biting into the cake, he rubs little pieces of his slice as if he's looking for some sort of foreign object hidden in the, in the cake. This gives Stephen pause, but he continues to eat his own slice. Then suddenly, bombings start to detonate outside the train in a nearby town. While Stephen looks out the window, the man grabs his cane and hits Stephen over the head a few times and steals the rest of the cake and then jumps off the train. Stephen chases the man into the countryside where the bombings are occurring. The man then shoots at Stephen and misses. The man runs to an empty house which is then destroyed by one of the bombs. Stephen finds the man's gun and walks away. The next morning, Stephen decides to hire a private investigator named George Rennett, played by Erskine Sanford, and this is to investigate the Mothers of Free Nations Charity. Stephen goes with Rennett to the office of the charity to find out what's going on with this organization. He meets Carla, Marjorie Reynolds, and Willie, who is played by Carl Esmond, who were siblings and were refugees from Austria after the Nazis occupied the country. Stephen is looking for Mrs. Belaine, the fortune teller from the fair. Stephen asks Carl and Willie if it's possible the organization is being used as a front for the Nazis. Stephen explains to them what happened the night before. Now, Willie offers to help Stephen investigate Mrs. Belaine and if there are spies in the organization. 
Stephen and Willie head to the London mansion of Mrs. Blaine, only to discover that the real Mrs. Blaine isn't who Stephen met at the fair. The real Blaine, played by Hilary Brooke, is blonde and beautiful, unlike the frumpy older women that Stephen saw. Mrs. Blaine claims she was at the fair and told fortunes to the bewilderment of Stephen. Stephen and Willie partake in a seance led by Mrs. Blaine. One of the guests is Dr. Forrester, played by the great Alan Napier, who's best known for playing Alfred in the original Batman TV show in the 1960s. One of the guests is also the man who arrived at the fair to claim the cake he said he won. His name is Mr. Koss, played by Dan Durier. During the seance, the lights go out, and a female voice keeps calling for Stephen, saying that she was poisoned by him. Stephen freaks out and breaks the circle. And then a gunshot rings out and the lights come on. They find Mr. Cost shot dead. Willie knows that Stephen has the gun from the man on the train, but there was only one bullet left in the gun and it was not fired. Someone else must have shot Mr. Cost. Willie instructs Stephen to knock him out and flee London. <laughs> Stephen complies and escapes the mansion. So Stephen is on the run, but being followed by the group that is out to get him, though we don't know why yet. Stephen calls Carla at her office looking for Willie. She informs him that the police didn't even bother questioning the group at the seance and are only looking for Stephen. Carla offers to meet with Stephen at an underground train station where people also stay during air raids. We then get the backstory about why Stephen was in the sanitarium at the beginning of the film. He was sentenced to murder two years prior for poisoning his wife, similar to what the voice said at the seance. His wife was dying a slow death for over a year with a terminal disease. Stephen bought poison in order to euthanize her and stop the pain she was living with. She begged Stephen to kill her, but he couldn't do it. She then found the poison and committed suicide, but Stephen was accused of her murder. However, the courts eventually called it a mercy killing, and instead of prison, Stephen was sent to an asylum. Alright, we are at the halfway point of the film, and you have all of the setup. How will it play out? This is a terrific film noir spy thriller, and it's acted brilliantly by Ray Land and Marjorie Reynolds. It's, t- it's a real tough film to find online, so if you do catch it on TCM or d- decide to buy a copy, it's well worth your time. And you can also hear the radio adaptation now if you just want to hear how the plot plays out. Now, the film is very of its time because it's going through Nazi spies and World War II, so if you enjoy the history of that era, you will not be disappointed. And plus, it does have an early Hitchcock feel, which is always welcome in my book. All right, some fun facts. Milan was one of the top-drawing actors around this time period. However, Fritz Lang did not like the film, nor working with Ray Milan. However, Lang did enjoy Dan Durier and used him in his next two films, Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street, both with Edward G. Robinson. So there were other differences in the novel compared to the film. Like, the character of Stephen Neal was named Arthur Rowe in the novel. Also, the asylum that Rowe finds himself in is run by Nazis, which is a plot point completely left out of the film. Also, the last name of Carla is Hilfe, which is also the German word for help. All right, time to play some old-time radio, and this time it's from NBC University Theater, so enjoy that, and I will be back next week to talk about another random movie from my DVD collection. This is the NBC University Theater, bringing you a full-hour dramatization of The Ministry of Fear, 
Written by the brilliant young English author Graham Greene and starring Alan Mowbray in the role of Arthur Rowe. Tell that even in the day with no sirens going, for the London streets were gap toothed with missing buildings, and the concrete air raid bunkers sat in the streets, half on the walk, half on the road. Round the corner on Bloomsbury Square, the drab bunting and streamers of a charity bazaar were strung across from pole to pole. They're always alike, charity bazaars, dowagers in garden hats, you know. And there's generally a thin, owlish clergyman taking tickets at the gate. The charge is a shilling admission. One, please. Although it doesn't seem quite fair. If you wait another five minutes, you can come in at the reduced rate. Six well, That's very thoughtful of you. We don't want people to feel cheated, do we? Even in a good cause. Just what is the cause? Relief for allied mothers. We've done our best, but... It's difficult running a bazaar in wartime. Yes, I should think so. Uh, well, here you are, sir. One ticket. Won't you step around to our booths? The ladies have been most... Delicious. They had the same booths they always did when I was a boy. Pitching pennies on a checkerboard. Old clothes. Relics contributed for sale. Ivory elephants. Brass ashtrays. Books and the like. At the middle booth, a large cake stood alone on a stand. Here you are, sir. Won't you take a flutter at the cake guessing? Cake guessing? Yes, the wait, you know. We clubbed our butter rations and scrounged some currants. Only sixpence. <laughs> it is a large cake for nowadays. All right, let's see. You can lift it if you like. Hmm. Three pounds, five ounces. Very good guess, I should say. Your wife must have been teaching you. No, 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 I, I'm not married. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. We'll see about your guess later. It was rather a dingy bazaar. There weren't many visitors, and all the volunteer workers seemed to be staring out into the square, waiting for something. And yet somehow they looked afraid. The only thing left now was a fortune teller's booth. As I passed it, the clergyman from the gate caught my arm. Uh, do try the fortune teller, sir. Mrs. Belair's is quite wonderful. Well, I really... Uh, you must have your fortune told, you know. Well, if Mrs. Belair's is so highly recommended... She is indeed. I, I suppose I might have a go. Enter. You... You're the fortune teller. Sit down, please, and cross my palm with silver. Well, here you are. Your name? Arthur Rowe. Your hand? Well, I... Your hand? There. Character first, and then your past. I'm not allowed to tell the future by law, you know. I see. Hmm. You're a man of determination. And great pity. You've made one woman happy. Here, I, I say... Uh, give me your hand. In your past, this woman was your wife. The past is clear in your hand. Uh, no, no. Don't tell me the past. Tell me the future. What? Would you repeat that? I said, don't tell me the past. Tell me the future. That's correct. Now, my instructions are these. What you want is the cake. The cake? You must guess the weight as four pounds, eight and one half ounces. Why? Is that the right weight? That's immaterial. You can go now. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the tip. I'll take no thanks. Go on. Well, goodbye. Oh! Uh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. It was clumsy of me. That's all right. My fault. Sit down, sir. Do you want your fortune told? Your character? The past? Oh, don't tell me the past. Tell the future. But what's that? Don't tell me the past. 
tell me the future. Good Lord. There's been a... Quick, we've got to get Dr. Sinclair. There's been a mistake, a dreadful mistake. Yes, and taken home. I beg your pardon. You won't think me greedy if I have another sixpennyworth? Oh, no, not at all. Guess away, sir. I should say then four pounds, eight and one half ounces. Uh, oh. I dare say it's a stupid guess. No. No, not at all. You've won it, sir. That's exactly right. Why, thank you. Thank you very much. Luck, I expect. Of course. Luck. If I could have a tin, I, I might carry it off now. Uh, Let's see, there's one under the counter here somewhere. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll just pack it away. Uh, just and... a moment, sir. Just a moment, yes? Uh, there's been a... I mean, you're not carrying your prize off so soon. Why, yes. It's it's the custom to put the cake back on auction uh, for the cause, you know. I didn't know. Well, every little bit does help allied mothers and all, you know. After all, you don't come to these affairs to make a profit. I don't want to make a profit, but I don't like being badgered. Here, here's a pound as a donation. But I fancy the cake. Mr. Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair. Uh, yes, Mr. Armadale. There's been a mistake, you know. This gentleman hasn't won the cake after all. What? Well, what the devil kind of a bazaar is this? What do you all want? The cake, you know, it isn't yours. Another gentleman guessed the right weight. Three pounds, five ounces. You'll have to give it back. Here, now I have you. Three pounds, five. That's what I guessed first off. But it's a mistake. Uh, really, sir, you've got to give it back. I shall not. What is all this? I won the cake and I intend to keep it. You detain me and I'll call a constable. Now, goodbye. It was two days later that the twisted man came to call. He was a new lodger, moved in the day before, and he asked to listen to the BBC news in my room. He sat all dark and twisted, listening, his ear cocked forward, smoking one cigarette after the other. And as the sirens wailed for the nightly air raid, I brewed a pot of tea and cut him a slice of the great prize cake. He crumbled each piece before he ate it and glanced anxiously up at the night. Listen. Yeah, overhead. Well, there's a shelter down the square. I don't like them. I'd rather sit here with the tea. You know, this is a stupid war for men like us. Is it? Well, they talk about democracy. But we're intelligent men. What do we want? We've checked up on you, you know. Well, whatever do you mean? Who's we? You're not one of the sheep. We know that. You're not paralyzed with moral codes. Well, here now. Hello, hello. We're in for it tonight. The East End. No, you're not one of the sheep. You're not afraid of murder. We know. I say you've checked up on me, but who the devil are you? There's been a mistake. You weren't meant to win that cake. The cake? Well, it's a bit late to worry, isn't it? I've eaten half. They've sent me to get it back. We'll pay. In reason. What do you mean? Who are they? Closer, that one. Battersea, most likely. Now, see here, what is all this about? What good is that cake to you now? You won't give it back, eh? I think not. It's the principle, you know. Mm. Oh, hello. That last bomb's jarred the blackout curtain. I expect the warden is whistling at us. There, that's better. You know, I, I don't like your attitude at all, nor your tone. Then you won't give the cake back? No. For one thing, it's a good cake. Real eggs, I expect. 
Best I've had since the war. You're being very foolish, you know. What good does the cake do you? It tastes good with the tea. What the... <coughs> what the devil? Something wrong? I know that taste. You murdering... Stand back. Stand away from me. Poison. You tried to poison me. <laughs> That's a this joke. The bomb. Look at... Bum blast is a funny thing. I dropped through the floor down to the kitchen, and never the worse but for a shaking. The next day, I looked up Mr. Rennett, proprietor of the Orthotex Confidential Inquiry Agency. Ah, yeah, now, Mr. Rowe, this is a rum story and no mistake. You know, this is a respectable business. Divorces and the like. I'm not Sherlock Holmes. But, Mr. Reddit, I tell you, somebody tried to kill me. Uh, So you said, or perhaps a mistake. I know the taste of that drug. My tea was loaded with it. Ah, now, Mr. Rowe, I'm sure you must be mistaken. Now, why don't you go... Well, haven't you ever come across a murder or a murderer? Ha, <laughs> ha, not likely. You don't meet murderers. They're not gentlemen. Perhaps then I'd better tell you. You see, I am a murderer. Oh. And that's what makes me furious. It's a bitter joke that they should try to kill me. Uh, you're a... Uh... Professional? I am, if thinking about it for two years, dreaming about it until finally... Well, if that makes me a professional, then yes. Yeah, now, you don't have to tell me all this. Yes, but it's it's significant. Everything is. My eating habits, the the fact that my wife kept... You said you weren't married. I'm not. It was my wife I murdered. Oh, you needn't worry. The police know all about it. Acquitted? Detained at His Majesty's pleasure. Insane. But I wasn't really. They all pitied me. Called it a mercy killing. That's how I knew about the poison. They must have looked it up. The same poison. The police would have said suicide. I can't go to the police, that's obvious. But I mean to find out who's behind this. I've got to have an anchor to make sure that I don't just disappear. I want you to cover and protect me. Oh, I don't know. The old thing's out of my life. Well, I'll pay more. A murderer is like a nobleman, isn't he? He pays more because of his title. The only connection I could think of was with the charity bazaar, the organization that sponsored it. Rennett and I took a bus to a narrow street off the Strand. Relief for Allied mothers had offices in a white modern block that looked like a mechanized mortuary. Rennett was to stay downstairs while I made inquiries about the charity bazaar. I don't quite understand. Who was it you wished to see? It's about a cake. I won it at your bazaar. And then, last night, a man came to see me, I I suppose, from this office. I don't understand. A bum fell before I could make out what he wanted to tell me. He was a small, twisted man. We have nobody here like that. Perhaps my brother, Willie. Yes, Anna. Oh, uh, can I help you, sir? Uh, somebody called on Mr. Rowe to ask about a cake. Huh? It seems he won it at our bazaar. Oh, yes, I overheard. Um, well, I can't imagine who it could have been. Uh, in this office, we are mostly foreigners. Uh, my sister and I are technically Austrian. Uh, refugees from the Nazis, you know. I, I got the impression that whoever wanted that cake was prepared to be, well, violent. I, I rather think he drugged my tea. No, how horrible... 
And you thought the man came from us? Oh, but this is very serious. Our, our entire relief agency might be discredited. Are you sure uh, it was poison? We must find out, Anna. Oh, yes, I'm sure. I think perhaps if we could find Mrs. Belair... She's the volunteer worker, the fortune teller, Willie. Yeah. Uh, she gave Mr. Rowe a tip on the cake weight. It wasn't the right weight, but they said I'd won. But it's extraordinary. It was probably all a misunderstanding. Oh, my eye. I think you have something, Mr. Rowe. It sounds devilish interesting. Uh, our name is Hilfer. Now, where can we begin to ferret out the truth? Uh, we must, you know, we may be deeply involved. But Willie... No, no, no. Anna thinks I'm a romantic, but, uh, well, I've been looking out of the window, and there's a, a little man with a shabby brown hat. Oh. He, he arrived after you, and he appears to be staying. That's the second evening paper he's bought. It almost looks as if you are being trailed. I am. That's a private detective I've hired to keep an eye on me. Well, you, you do take this seriously. I believe there was something in the cake. That man crumbled every bit he ate. Well, uh, the best thing is to uh, find Mrs. Belair's address in the file. Willie, I I'm sure this whole thing is some stupid mistake. Oh, well, I hope not. Oh, I, I beg your pardon, Mr. Rowe, but we who are technically aliens are not allowed to do anything in the war, but, uh, well, uh, collect woolies for allied mothers. <laughs> it is the misfortune of my life. A little action would be appreciated. I'll go with you to Mrs. Belair's, if you like. Willie, you can't leave the office. Oh, but, Anna, darling, this is important. There may be trouble. Mr. Rowe has a detective. It sticks out a yard. It's no use warning everybody. It, it would be a dead giveaway to show up anywhere with a man who had detective written all over him. No, we must drop him. I wouldn't know how to do it. Oh, <laughs> that's easy. We go out by the back door. <laughs> Mrs. Belair's, uh, I'm Mr. Hilfer from the Allied Mothers Fund. Oh, of course. Dear Dr. Sinclair must have told you of our gatherings. Won't you come in? Oh, thank you. Uh, this is Mr. Rowe. How do you do? Uh, I believe we met. Have we? <laughs> I don't believe so. Won't you come along? We're almost ready to start. We welcome newcomers, you know, as long as they're not hostile. I see. Uh, I'm afraid I don't quite understand, Mrs. Belair. You mean about our gatherings? Well, you see, if they feel a hostile force, they won't come. It's so maddening. They? You know, the forces, the spirits. Won't you come this way? We're all ready. We have two guests this evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Hilfer and Mr. Rowe. Dr. Sinclair sent them. Perhaps you'd like to meet our two professional men, Dr. Forrester. How do you do? Decided to help us delve into the mysteries. I still don't quite... I'm always ready for a mystery, Doctor. Oh, really? And this is our skeptic, Mr. Cox. He's a businessman, and he keeps thinking up Ted. Uh, Mrs. Belairs is angry because I won't be believe in her ghosts. Oh, come, that's no way to talk of them, Mr. Cox. Well, shall we start? Telephone, Mum, for a Mr. Rowe. Oh, dear, and just when we're ready to start the meeting. Would you mind hurrying? Uh, not at all. Well, that's odd. Nobody knew you were here. Uh, shall I go with you? No, no, that's all right. Out in the hall, eh? Do hurry back, Mr. Rowe. Yes, yes. They never wait. Hello? Mr. Rowe, are you alone? Yes. Please, will you leave that house as fast as you can? It's Miss Hilfer, isn't it? Do you want to speak to your brother? No, no, don't. Anything to him. I don't want to see you hurt. 
Hurry, hurry. They'll, they'll try to get you in the dark. They're all waiting as... Oh, who is that? Uh, uh, Rennett. The detective, you know. Rennett? Uh, yes, he traced me. Worried. Look, Hilfer, I think we ought to go. I don't like this. Mrs. Belair's saying that we haven't met. I don't like it. Run away now, just when the fun is starting? Oh, no, no, no. The seance should be fun, Mr. Rowe. There was a circle of chairs in the drawing room when we got back. I was seated between Dr. Forrester and Mr. Cast, and then the lights were turned off. Everyone sat motionless. Dr. Forrester's hand on my left was cold. Mr. Cast's was hot, hot and moist. We seemed to sit there forever in the dark. <coughs> One of you is an enemy. They won't come through. Hold tight to the hands. Put on the lights. Where are they? Oh, that's better. Ah, that was quite an act. Look, Mr. Cost. Mr. Cost. Good Lord. Get a doctor. I'm a doctor. Here, let me see. What is it, Dr. Forrester? Oh. I'm afraid the only thing to do is to call the police. Mr. Cost is dead. Stabbed with a penknife. Oh, but that's impossible. Why, the door was locked. And we were all holding hands. Not all. Mr. Rowe dropped my hand. But that was after. I'm not going to touch the body again before the police come. But Dr. Forrester... I have the knife, Mr. Rowe. It is initialed A-R. But I lost that knife last night in a bombing. It, it, it can't... Hilfer, you can't think oh, I... Of course not, old man. He can't be dead. It's ridiculous. I should go and call the police at Notting Hill Station. I shouldn't try to leave if I were you, Mr. Rowe. Oh, but this, this is impossible. <sighs> I must rest. Any seance is a strain, but this... Oh, Mr. Rowe. Would would anybody object if I went to the bathroom and was sick? I, I expect someone should go with you um, as a matter of form. It was Mr. Rowe's night. Well, come along then, Mr. Rowe. I'll, I'll keep an eye on you. Hmm? Now then... Feel better? I'm all right. Hilfer, I didn't do it. Of course you didn't. This is the real thing. But why? Why? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Only you've got to be off, you know. They will shut you up for weeks. But what can I do? It, it was my knife, and that fellow cast... Yes, they are devils, aren't they? We've got to keep you out of the way until your detective and I... Uh, by the way, who was it that telephoned you? Your sister. Oh, good for her. She must have got hold of something. But I, I wasn't to tell you. Oh, well, I, I shan't eat her for trying to spoil my fun. No, you'll have to go underground. It's the fashion of the times. And this isn't a joke. Well, if we are to keep our nerve, my friend, we'll have to keep our sense of humor. Now, it's only a small drop to the ground outside this window. And that the air raid sirens will be going in ten minutes. You'll get away, all right? But how about you? Well... We'll turn the water taps on full, and then you knock me out as hard as you can. It, it's the best alibi you can give me. Uh, after all, I, I am classified as an enemy alien. <laughs> <laughs> 
I spent the night on a canvas shelf in a public air raid shelter in the tube station. I dreamed horribly each time a train came into the station until they stopped at 12. I dreamed that I was on trial again for her murder, and the king's counsel was the murdered Mr. Cost, and he delivered the charge stuttering slightly, toying with my blood-stained penknife. Yeah, now you quit tossing up there. Are we none of us will get no sleep? I had breakfast in an ABC tea shop in Clapham High Street. There was nothing about the murder in the papers. They were playing with me. I called Mr. Rennett's office. He isn't in. He was with you yesterday, Mr. Rowe. I know. I know. I left him. Well, he hasn't come back. He left me a report on your interview, but we haven't seen him since. I've got to find him. There's a man been killed. What's that? What have you done with Mr. Rennett? I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, wait. Well, what are you calling from? I, I want to... In England, we haven't learned the technique of going underground. I didn't know where I could cash a check. I didn't have any friends, any party, any organization to turn to. So I walked. I walked along the Thames embankment, watching the barges and the skittering patrol boats. Against the parapet, a thin, gray man stood tossing crumbs to a flock of sparrows that wheeled about his head. How do you like that, sir? The birds know their old uncle. Here, catch! It must be difficult to find enough crumbs in wartime. Strictly illegal if the Ministry of Food knew. I've seen you before. Oh, I dare say. Twice today. At that auction I passed. Of course, I buy and sell books, you know. Business is dreadfully bad these days. Take this suitcase. If I don't deliver these at Regal Street before five, I lose a sale. By the way, do you have the time? It's past four. Oh, dear, I ought to go on. It's been a long day. You know, I've seen you before. You're Arthur Rowe, aren't you? What? How? I was told I'd find you here. But who sent you? Rennett. I'm one of his operatives. But where is he? The office said he was missing. They did. <laughs> He's a deep one, he is. You are the top-ranked detective, Mr. Rowe. He knows what he's about. Yes, but where is he? I want to see him. He wants to see you. That's why I met you. You come along with me. Why didn't he come himself? I don't like this. He's on a trail. Left word from meeting place. Come on. All right, then. Let me take your suitcase. Thank you. Getting a little old for this work, I am, but Rennett says it casts off suspicion. Suitcase is heavy, too. Books, you know. we best take a cab. Where are we going? Regal Court. I'm to watch outside while you take the suitcase up to Mr. Rennett. Number six, it is. He's under the name of Travers. Hi there. Taxi. <laughs> The little man was very quiet in the cab, and he looked anxiously at his watch as we pulled up before Regal Court. He took up his place outside the building, and I went in. Number six was at the end of the corridor, and the wall light was out, so I could barely make out the number. The door gave as I turned the knob, and I swung it open. Mr. Rowe. What the death? Miss Hilfer. I've been waiting. What is this? Where's Mr. Rennett? Are you here to see him, too? No, no, no. I, I came to see you. But that little gray man, he said he was from Mr. Rennett. But he couldn't have been. He must have been one of the... Come in and put down that suitcase. We'd better shut the door. Oh. But what is this place? Why have I been led here? I don't know. But you're in danger. That's why I came. I don't want any more death. 
Please, please go. How did you know I was here? I won't tell you. I've asked you to go away quickly. But what is this? Who's in this wild conspiracy? And what is it? Go now. I... I don't want to see you get hurt anymore. I've seen so many bad people. You don't fit. You mustn't worry about the past. They, they all said it was a mercy killing. You know about me? Yes, we checked. You killed out of pity. But they don't. They don't pity anyone. You aren't in it, too? I... No. Then that means they wanted both of us here. Let me look out of the door. Oh. They're waiting for us at the end of the corridor. Oh. Oh. Back turned. I can't see who. We can't get out. We might ring up the clerk and ask him to come up. And then go down with him. They wouldn't dare do anything. That's it. Phone on the table. Hello? It's dead. They've cut the wire. Let's get some more light. No light. They think of everything. I dare say. We haven't any weapons. I'm dreadfully scared. I'm sorry. I, I don't like the dark. What's that? The kitchen. Good Lord, we forgot to see if the door was bolted. They're inside. Oh, if we had some weapon, a, a stick, anything. The air raid sirens will go soon. Then they'll come. That suitcase. If those aren't books, they're probably bricks. I don't believe it's locked. I, I wouldn't touch it. Oh, they must make a mistake sometime. A brick had come in handy. They'll wait till the sirens, till everybody's gone down to the shelters. I'm getting tired of this cat and mouse act. Here you! Come in here! Please? They've chosen the wrong man. They think they can get everything by fear. But I am a murderer, aren't I? I'm not afraid to kill. All I need is a weapon. One of those bricks. We've got to do something. Here, open the suitcase. Open it. It isn't locked. There's one catch. Now for the other. It's stuck. Here it comes. Intermission commentator today is the English poet who has now become a citizen of this country, W.H. Auden. One of the most influential poets of this generation and author of, for the time being, Christmas Oratorio, The Sea in the Mirror, and other poems. Here is Mr. Auden. In its form, The Ministry of Fear is a thriller like John Buchan's 39 Steps. The thriller resembles the epic in that its subject is a war between two sides. But there are two important differences. Firstly, the war is a secret struggle. The outsider sees only peace, and there are no visible distinguishing marks to show who is friend and who is foe. The old clergyman turns out to be a thug, or the crippled fruit peddler to be one of our cleverest agents. Secondly, the reader is made a partisan of one side. In the Iliad, even though it was written by Greeks, the Trojans are depicted as equally noble. But in the thriller, they, the enemy, are always bad. The secrecy is an added excitement, but the partisanship is apt to make the thriller a bit priggish. As Graham Greene himself says, none of the books of adventure one read as a boy had an unhappy ending, and none of them was disturbed by a sense of pity for the beaten side. 
Graham Greene has succeeded, I think, in avoiding this crudity without sacrificing the drama by relating the thriller to another literary form, the medieval allegory. His thrillers are projections into outer melodramatic action of the struggles which go on unendingly in every mind and heart. Each of us, perhaps this is why we like reading thrillers, is a creature at war with himself. Further, he desires peace and is a self-deceptive creature who thinks he is feeling one thing or acting from one motive, while his real feeling and motives are quite different. There is, therefore, not a good side and a bad. Nevertheless, it does matter who wins. Victory does not finally solve anything. A dangerous attack has been defeated. Perhaps we understand ourselves a little better. That is all. The future, as difficult as before, perhaps more so, remains ahead. Graham Greene, then, employs a distinctive form. He also exhibits a distinctive concern. Just as Balzac comes back again and again to avarice and Sondal to ambition, so in book after book, Graham Greene analyzes the vice of pity, that corrupt parody of Christian love and compassion, which is so insidious and deadly for sensitive natures. The war in the ministry of fears between those who pity and those who can bear pain, other people's pain, endlessly, the people who don't care. Yet both sides have a common bond, both have murdered. Arthur Rowe, the hero, has killed his wife to save her suffering from an incurable illness. Through his encounters with Hilfer, the fascist agent, he is brought to realize that it was her endurance and her patience which he found most unbearable. He was trying to escape his own pain, not hers. For behind pity for another lies self-pity, and behind self-pity lies cruelty. To feel compassion for someone is to make oneself their equal. To pity them is to regard oneself as their superior, and from that eminence the step to the torture chamber and the corrective labor camp is shorter than we think. For providing us with exciting reading and at the same time exposing so great and typical a heresy of our time, Mr. Green deserves our gratitude. Thank you, Mr. Arden. Our dramatization continues from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification. was Richard Digby now. That's all I remembered. No, I, I didn't remember that much. They told me it was on my identity card. They were nice to me, the attendants, the nurses, the doctor. It was very pleasant out there in the country. There was one young man, John's his name was, who looked after me particularly. You've got to rest, Mr. Digby. I know, but sometimes I try to think. Who am I? But we know. You're Richard Digby. Yes, but who is Richard Digby? What sort of life do you think I led? I can't remember. Oh, the doctor will take care of that. Well, I suppose there are worse cases than mine. A few. They're in the other wing. I do remember things clearly until I was 18. But then... Oh, come now. Don't worry. Yes, but supposing there have been inquiries. Supposing my wife is trying to find me. Well, don't tell me that you remember a wife. No. No, I don't. Well, you can trust the doctor. He's the finest of them. Mr. Digby? Oh, good morning, Dr. Forrester. Good morning, John. Uh, will you leave me with Mr. Digby? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, I'll be waiting in your office. Well, Mr. Digby, and how are you feeling? I've been thinking. About before, I mean. 
trying to remember. Well, then, I, I good news for you. Good news, Dr. Forrester? We've turned up somebody who knew you in the old days. Who? Ha-ha. I want you to discover for yourself. But I... I waited until now, till I felt you were strong enough. You won't disappoint us, I'm sure. Well, I leave the two of you alone. He's here now? She is here. You may come in now. I'll leave you. You have changed, haven't you? I'm afraid I don't Your know. Your hair is grayer, and that scar. And yet, you look happier. They've been good to you. Oh, very good. Excuse me, it sounds abrupt, but I... I don't know your name. You don't remember me at all? No. Anna. Anna Hilfe. That sounds foreign. Austrian. Well, you must excuse me. There are so many questions. Were we simply friends? Just friends. Why? Well, you're very pretty. I... I couldn't tell. You saved my life when the bomb went off. I'm very glad. The doctor doesn't want me to learn things fast, but... You will tell me, won't you... Am I married? No, you are not married. I do wish I knew what I did before. It couldn't have been the professions, army, navy, church. I wasn't wearing the right clothes. Law. Was it law, Anna? Uh, I can't see myself in a wig getting some poor devil hanged for murder. No. Well, at least I'm a prized patient. An interesting case. And Dr. Forrester. You like Dr. Forrester? He fills one with awe. Yet I feel I've known him before. You've changed so much. You seem so, so freer. You'll come often? It's my job, Arthur. I didn't catch it till she was gone. She had called me Arthur. And I was Richard Digby. She came to see me often... And yet she would tell me nothing. Dr. Forrester said I was to be allowed to regain my memory slowly. But Anna Hilfer seemed to shy away from all discussion of the days before. The days that were black to me. Let's talk of something else now. You've got to rest. Oh, can't we pretend it's the old days before that bomb went off? Maybe that would help No, me. no. You know, I don't think you told me the truth. What? I mean about us. I must have loved you. I know because... Directly you come into the room, I, I feel such a sense of relief. It doesn't seem likely. We'd known each other only a few days. What sort of person was I? We must stop this now. I want to leave this place. No, no, you, you must stay here, please. But why? Why? You weren't happy outside. I'll do anything to keep you happy. This is how I like you. Not as you were. I wish I could remember. Just be quiet. Stay here a few weeks till your memory comes back. If you'll come often. May I kiss you now? I... I... Oh, oh my dear. Oh. My dear. Why did you say we were only friends? I wasn't going to bind you. You've bound me now. Yes. And I'm glad. Only rest. Rest, dear. And don't remember. Please. Quite pleasant in the nursing home. The attendants were kind. I had the newspaper and the radio and the visits with Anna. And then one day they stopped giving me the paper. They wouldn't let me out of my room. I was remembering little bits and pieces of the empty years. And I raised a devil of a row when they stopped the paper. So they sent for Dr. Forrester. 
Won't do, Digby. It won't do. I'm disappointed. I want my clothes and the paper. I gave orders it was be stopped. Uh, Miss Hilfer has been acting unwisely. These long conversations are bad for you. I won't be treated as an invalid or a child. You'll be treated as I see fit. I'm leaving here. My dear Digby, be reasonable. You're a very sick man. I don't want to restrain you. Or have you certified insane? I'm as sane as you are. Oh, come now, Digby. Trust me. What you need is rest. No more visitors. That's it, yes. No more visitors. How about Miss Hilfer? Oh, uh, I made a mistake there. We were not strong enough, were we? I've told Miss Hilfer not to come again. I was treated like a schoolboy. And so like a schoolboy, I had planned to escape. It wasn't difficult. They had stopped locking my door. And one morning early, I just strolled through the house. No one saw me until I reached the front door. Then just as I reached for the handle... Wait a minute. Where are you going? Anna. I, I'm i going for a walk. But the doctor said that you must This not... isn't prison, Anna. I'm just going for a walk. You mustn't. You're in danger. You mean my memory? I don't remember, but I'm functioning all right. There's no reason to lock me in. But you've got to do what Dr. Forrester says. You've got to. No, I don't. I don't trust him anymore. I have the oddest feeling that... Well, I, I've seen him before, and I, I don't like it. Besides, he said I wasn't to see you anymore. But you can't disobey him. Anna, what is all this? It's more than just my memory. You've got to tell me. He threatened to have me certified. No. Anna, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. No, no, believe me. You're, you're safest here. You've got to trust me. But I can't. Not when I don't understand. I'm going now. Then listen to me. And believe me, England is at war. You know that. I didn't remember. It was in the papers. There are people who work for the enemy. It's something new. Spies? That's not new. Some men always sell out. They don't pay them. It's through blackmail. They have a complete cross-index on everybody that's important. The Germans, you mean? They're agents. They know everything. Bits of the past. Things forgotten. And the ones they choose have to do what's wanted. Or their secrets are turned over to the press or to Scotland Yard and the public prosecutor. It's a sort of a... A ministry of fear with very efficient undersecretaries. But what's this to do with me? I wasn't a German agent before... Was I? No, no, but but just before you came here, there were questions in Parliament. Some papers were reported missing just for a few hours, you know, and the government hushed it up. Time to photograph them? That's right. Well, it didn't work. They lost the film. There was a mistake. Was I involved? I can't tell you. I can't. But don't you see, it happened again, just the other day. They couldn't blackmail you before. They couldn't reach you through the Ministry of Fear. Why not? And now you're safe, as long as you don't remember. Stay here, stay here and be safe, darling. That's all I care for now. But I don't understand. Why has it happened again? They failed the first time. So they had to reach someone else through the Ministry of Fear. But why couldn't they blackmail me before? Don't ask me anymore. Please don't. It isn't safe. I don't care, Anna. I don't. But why, there's even more reason for me to get out. But your mind, Dr. Forrester says... But why should I stay? For all I know, he'll drive me all the way insane. I don't trust Dr. Forrester. I don't trust him at all. You don't trust me, Digby? Dr. Forrester, I... I, I know, I know, Miss Hilfer. You found Mr. Digby about to take a walk. You may go now, Miss Hilfer. He wasn't going, Dr. Forrester. He wasn't... Now, Digby... You've got to take your choice. Back to bed 
or to the violent ward. You can't do this to me, Doctor. I'm as well as you are. A fool, Digby. A fool in love. Do you know what you really are? Yeah, look at this newspaper clipping. That's you. But... Read it. A murderer. Go and think about that. That's not me. Go and look in the mirror. You asked for it, Digby, just like the others. Go on. Remember. Remember. Murderer. I stared at the clipping. It was a thin, tired face. Arthur Rowe, that was my name. Then I remembered Anna. Arthur, she had called me. The darkness began to lift a little. I could see Dr. Forrester standing over something dark and bleeding. The memories thickened and then faded away. I had to get away now. I knew I must escape. It wasn't original, I suppose, but I, I went down the drain pipe. It was a mile to the village, and I caught the local train to London. I'm sorry, sir, but you've got to have a ticket, you know. I, I've got to see the police. Uh, you don't have to go all the way to London for that, sir. I know, but... Uh, you're one of Dr. Forrester's patients, aren't you? No, 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 no. I, I, I've got to get to London. I've got to get to Scotland Yard. Oh, certainly. I know, sir. Then you'll let me go? You'll, you'll let me stay on the train? Oh, why, surely. I guess we can trust you for the ticket, sure. Oh, thank heaven. And Doctor? Ah, oh, Dr. Forrester, I've been waiting for you. I was afraid you wouldn't get the message I dropped for you. But you... you said I could ride. I had to humor him, Doctor. He had me worried. You've done very well, Conductor. Well, Digby? Leaving us without saying goodbye. All right. All right, Doctor. All right, Conductor. If you'll just step out in the corridor with me, we'll discuss things. After you, sir. Oh, thank you. Now, I'll have my men at the next station. I don't want him to hear. There may be trouble. Oh, we'll be coming in in a minute. Ah, there we are. Come on, Doctor. We'd better get back before the train stops. Don't want any trouble, do we? Do we, Conductor? Conductor! He's gone! Outside! Doors open! He's got away, Doctor! Got away! Please! <laughs> Mr. Rowe, eh? We've been waiting for you to turn up. I came to Scotland Yard directly I reached London, Inspector. Well, then. What made you turn up after four months? Hmm. You look as if you'd been crawling through a vegetable garden. How did that happen? Rolling down a railway embankment. You see, I've been in the nursing home, Inspector. I lost my memory. They told me I was Richard Digby. Your memory has come back now? I remember some. Not much. A very convenient sort of memory. See here, I'm trying to tell you everything I remember about the murder. Murder? I've not mentioned murder to you. Well, there was nothing in the papers. But Dr. Forrester told me... Forrester? Wait a minute. You're connected with them? I don't understand, but I... I do seem to remember Dr. Forrester from before. He was... He was bending over somebody. A man. It was my knife. There was blood. This looks like our first connection. Here, Mr. Rowe, look over this file of photographs. Recognize anybody? Well, that one's Dr. Forrester. Of course. Now, how about this one? Or this? Wait a minute. That one. That man. Know him? He, he stuttered. Yes, yes, that's the one. That's the one who was murdered. Huh? They did it with my knife. 
It's Mr. Cost. They killed him. What? My dear Mr. Rowe, that man hasn't been murdered. He's as alive as you are. But, but Dr. Forrester, he, he was there. Mr. Rowe, we've been looking for you about a murder, all right, but not your Mr. Cost. It's a Mr. Rennett we found. Rennett? A detective you hired. He turned up floating in the Thames, and his office told us some story you told him about a cake. It didn't make sense then, but with this last connection, we've got most of the pieces. I don't understand at all. We've been looking for a roll of film. Microfilm. Now, I suppose you've heard of those questions in Parliament on missing documents? Yes. Well, they were missing for an hour. Two high officials were involved. And evidently, the papers were photographed. It happened twice. Blackmail. The first time, I imagine, they were hidden in your cake. But that was destroyed in an air raid. So they had to try again. That file of photographs you've just seen includes everybody remotely connected with both blackmail victims. The same doctor, for example. Or the same tailor. Tailor? You'll see. The attempts. We'll be able to round up the whole ring. But I still don't remember. You will. Come along now, Mr. O. We've got a lot of ground to cover and not much time. I was remembering quickly now. The days before the emptiness were filling in. I remembered a name. The fortune teller, Mrs. Belairs. A twisted man. An explosion. But there was nothing clear, nothing in place. We were in a shop now, a tailor shop. And Inspector Pretzis warned me to keep a sharp eye. I'll be here by the door. You go to the counter. Go ahead. But there's no one there. He'll be out. Go on. Call if you need me. Can I help you, sir? Cost. I beg your pardon? It's you. You're not dead. It was you at the seance. I, I don't understand, but will you excuse me for a moment? I, I have to make a call. Hello? Mr. Adams, I, I, I'm afraid I, I'll no longer be able to deliver your coat. Uh, no, not at all. Personally, sir, I have no hope. No hope at all. Uh, now, if you'll excuse me, sir, I, I, I'm ordered in the stock room. Now, moment, moment. Here, here, watch him. Don't let him alone in there. Out of my way, Rue. Good Lord. No hope. That's what he said on the phone. <sighs> we'll never get anything out of him. Sergeant Allison. Brave in a way. Brave? Mr. Rowe, that man was killed by fear. And there'll be many more dying for what he's done. Oh, well, I hope we find your Mrs. Belairs alive and talking. Sergeant, skin this house alive. We've got to find those blasted films. Uh. Still not talking, Mrs. Belairs? You've got no right to do this. Those films could be hidden anywhere. Oh, this your best tea, China? Here, put those down. <gasps> oh! Hollow handles. Yeah, no films. You'll suffer for this. No, madam. It's you will suffer. 
Giving information to the enemy is a hanging offense. <laughs> they don't hang women. Not in this war. We may hang more people than the papers tell you about. Well, Mr. O, now we've got to hear about your Dr. Forrester. The local police have been sent out to the nursing home. Is he the leader? A victim, I expect. One of the blackmailed. Caught by the Ministry of Fear. Huh? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. The Ministry of Fear. We heard from the nursing home. The local police put in a trunk call. It's difficult to catch a doctor, I expect. He has so many ways of avoiding arrest. Dr. Forrester had taken one of the quickest. Poison. Inspector Prentice's trail had opened suddenly, and now it was closed down again. They put me up in a lodging house, and then they left me. I sat there trying to remember. There were still large craters of emptiness edged with black. But then I thought of something else. Cost telephoning just before he shot himself. I changed a half a crown into pennies and started checking. I remembered watching his fingers in the dial. B A T 271. That was all. The last number was missing. There were only ten possibilities. I was certain I could recognize some voice. The leader to whom Cost had given his last report. Battersea, light and power. I suppose it was a fool's crusade. I probably wouldn't recognize the voice. I should have turned the number over to the inspector. But I felt that here, here was the key to those years I had forgotten. Hello? Hello? Who is that? It was Anna. It was she that Cost had called. The leader, the Ministry of Fear. I matched an address to the phone number... And the flat was on the third floor of a lodging house in Battersea. Oh, it's you. Come, come in. Did you telephone? I got your number when Cost called. He killed himself directly after. I didn't know you were there. Anna, aren't you even sorry? All your friends, Cost, Forrester. You don't understand, do you? Oh, my dear, you, you've been so mixed up. You watched me when I was at the nursing home. You, you were with the Ministry of Fear. No, no. I didn't want you to remember you were safe then. I didn't want to work with them. But that was the only way that I could keep you safe. I loved you, Anna. I... I do now. But I've got to have those films. The films? Where are they? Willie has them. Your brother? You mean he's the leader? See, that, that's why I couldn't explain to you or to the police... I couldn't see Willie hurt. I couldn't. But he was so helpful to me. <laughs> he was. He staged that murder at the seance. And then he wanted me to die with you when the suitcase exploded. But when you lost your memory, they felt safe. Where is Willie? Asleep in the other room. Why, Anna? Why do you protect him? I don't know. He's my brother. Anna, I've got to get those films. We'll need a weapon there. Oh. This candlestick. It, it's heavy enough. No, no, give it to me. I won't have him hurt. I won't. Thank you, sister. Oh. Well, Mr. Rowe? The films. Oh, yes. I've got them. Where are they? Let's strike a bargain, huh? My sister seems attached to you. You you wouldn't want to eliminate your brother-in-law, huh? Now, do put down that candlestick, Anna. I mean to have those films, and the police want you. That isn't reasonable, Rowe. You see, I have... A gun in my jacket pocket. 
So stay still. You can't bargain, Hilfer. You can't shoot us and get away. The walls are thin, you know. Oh, oh, it might be rather grand. I have a bargain for you. Don't listen to him, Arthur. Don't. The films, Hilfer. She's afraid, you know. She thinks you'll not love her. Willie! She won't stay with you, Roe. She'll see you shut down and laugh. She'll stay with me, Roe. She can't get away. Anna, look out! I'll get the gun. Take the candlestick. Oh, Anna, my wrist. I had to choose. Oh, Willie, Willie, I I had to keep him safe. The film, Silver. Oh, my wrist. Darling, darling. Anna. Leave me alone with him, Arthur, please. I'll get the films for you. Please, Arthur, please. Here, Arthur. I've got your film. Where's Willie? I, I, I let him go. I, I couldn't see him. I, here, take the film. Let me see. He pleaded with me, Arthur. He's afraid of being hurt. He didn't keep his word, Anna. These aren't the negatives. They're prints. Where is he? Willie, Willie. I don't care about the war. I, I wanted to save both of you. I thought. That Where I is could... he? Paddington Station. He's gone to catch the 720 to Scotland. The gun? He's got it. There's one bullet in it. You have made a mess of it, haven't you? I thought I... I loved him, Arthur. I wanted to give him a chance. Well, I, I suppose he won't kill me. That would waste the shot. I'll be back, Anna. You wait here. <laughs> Mr. Rowe again. Well, come in, come in, come in. Do come in, sir. There's plenty of room. Uh, you'll excuse me, won't you? This dear lady has me winding her wool. But... No, don't worry. She's quiet. Uh, she can't hear a thing. Can you, old girl? You can smoke if you like, gentlemen. It won't bother me. Oh, would you mind holding the wood higher? Well, as long as your hands are busy, I'll take that gun. Which pocket? Ah. Anna should have kept you longer. I do wish the train would start, don't you? Give me back the gun, Roe, and I will give you the films. Here now, that's done. I'll take the wool off your hands, dear boy. All right, Hilfer. Give me the films, then we'll talk. I agree. Ah, hand me my coat. Now, there. <laughs> Shoulder padding makes a first-rate safe, huh? Give them to me. Yes, the negative's all right. And now the gun. You let me have the gun. The gun... You promise. You cheated too often, Hilfer. Be sensible, Roe. I can't get away by shooting you in the middle of Paddington Station. I won't be beaten. They'll try to make me talk, I know. You have got to give me the gun. No. Anna will hang if I talk, Roe. You wouldn't kill her. You wouldn't. Now give me the gun. No. Oh, you will kill her then, huh? You don't remember. You don't remember about your wife. My wife? Am I married? Oh, not now. Oh, you murdered her. Poisoned her. They put you in an asylum for that. Oh, no. No. Now you'll kill Anna, too. Hmm? They'll hang her, Ro. Give me the gun. Oh, no, no, I... I can't remember. Give me the gun. I... I... Here, give it to me. I shall call the police now. I... 
I know. You've got the gun. Yes, I... I've got the gun. Eh? Eh, what's that? Is the train starting to move? Guard! Guard, there's been an accident. Would you call the constable? Oh, something's happened to the gentleman. He must be ill. Oh, dear, oh, dear. He's gone and twisted my yarn. Dear, dear, dear. Slowly, the red stain crept out over the tangled white strands of the old lady's yarn. It was over. I have the past back now. The whole past. But with it has come the fear that the whole ministry of traitors could not instill in me. For I know now that we all fear. If we love, then we must be afraid. We will be together, Anna and I, but we will live in the shadow of discovery. We will have to tread carefully for a lifetime, never speaking without thinking twice. We must watch each other as enemies because we love each other so much. We will live as all men live under that universal ministry of fear. Curtain falls on our dramatization of the Graham Greene novel, The Ministry of Fear. Next week at this time, during the midterm vacation, the NBC University Theater will bring you one of the outstanding dramatizations of last summer's series. The Catherine Ann Porter story, Noon Wine, starring Miss Beulah Bondi. Today's dramatization of the Ministry of Fear was written by Ernest Canoy. Your intermission commentator was the distinguished poet W.H. Auden. And our star was Mr. Alan Mowbray. Our cast included Eric Snowden, Monty Margetts, Norma Varden, Charles Dean, Alec Harford, Alma Lawton, Ben Wright, Ramsey Hill, Raymond Lawrence, and Donald Morrison. Your announcer, Don Stanley. The director of the NBC University Theater is Andrew C. Love. Original music for the Ministry of Fear was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. Out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on thatmetalstation.com.